the JTAP podcast, episode 59. Send it. I can do that. JTAX. Clearing it hot, making it rain, and bringing the boom boom. Welcome, everybody, to the JTAP podcast. Danny, uh, I really appreciate you uh, setting aside some time and, and sitting down with me for a chat. Yep, no problem. It's good to be on. Um, like I say on every podcast, you know, everyone's opinion on here is their own. And it's not that of any organization. And, and, and it's just some lighthearted conversation trying to, you know, open up uh, the community a little bit more and, and have a chat with each other. Um, Danny, take us all the way back to the beginning. Um, where did you come from? Where did you grow up? What's like school and uh, the early years look for like for you before you joined up? Uh, so I'm from Dudley in the West Midlands. Um, so if I sound like Lenny Emery. That's probably where, <laughs> uh, that's where it's coming from. Um, yeah, I grew up there, uh, story like a lot of the lads from a council estate, single parent family. Um, there was me and four others, and then my mum remarried with me and seven others. Um, yeah, kind of on the breadline the whole time. Uh, so one of the reasons I joined the army, to be honest, uh, was to kind of take the pressure off my mum. I mean, I'm six foot five, so I was eating around the house and home by the time <laughs> I was 15. Um, I went to high school. I'd already got into the army by the time I was 15 and a half. Right. I passed all the tests. So it came to the GCSEs and I just didn't bother. Like I was like, not interested. And ever since I was the age of five, I knew I wanted to be a soldier. Um, I knew straight away. There's a photo of me at my uh, nan's house of me sat behind the wheel of a bedstead when I'm six years old. I remember shouting, oh, I can't wait to join the army to drive a truck. My aspirations were that low. It wasn't until like years later, and I remember just the two fat guys in lightweights just laughing at me, going, "What is wrong with this kid?" Uh-huh. Um, but that was it, mate. Like my heart was set on it the whole time, and yeah, it's what I wanted to do. Yeah, what? Where do you think that influence has come from? Like, did who? Like you said, you obviously you were taken to a show or something. There was that around you. Did you know yeah, other people so, in the military? No, no. Like um, the only person really was my uh, great granddad. And he was a um, Lancaster bomber, a tail gunner. So I kind of grew up with his stories. That's a pretty, that's a pretty badass story. Oh yeah, I mean, I'd love to. I'd love to get that on a podcast. That that, that oh. blows my mind. Right, getting if I could go back in time to that generation, like oh, those th- those untold stories. Imagine being a tail gunner on a Lancaster bomber, like heading out into like deepest, darkest Europe at night, no lights, staring into... It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing when you go to, like, Memorial Parade now and you wear your gongs and people go, oh, what's that? And you go to Iraq, Afghanistan, blah, blah, blah. And you look at the old guys who's sat in the corner with his rum and you're like, you don't even feel worthy. When people go, oh, well done, you're like, no, mate. Like, it's embarrassing Not even close, is compared it? No. to what these guys do. But he was, like, a little five-foot-two Irishman and <laughs> growing up the whole time. Like, he, he passed away a few years ago, but he was 96. And I remember I used to go and see him in the old people's home and he'd still like 96, still like a proper squatty sense of humour. And he'd be like, oh, what do you think of that nurse over there? I'd be like, yeah, she's all right. <laughs> I'd be like, and he'd be like, oh, she's a dog. And I'd be like, oh, right, okay. We're, we're oh. at that stage of life, are we? Oh, God. And he'd do press-ups and everything. Like, yeah, really good guy. But he was literally the only person I knew with the military. I joined the cadets when I was about 13. I was one of those brats. Mm. Um, and yeah, so I kind of did a lot of stuff on going to the camps and all that kind of thing, which kind of made me more and more into it. I was part of the uh, Stafford's like cadet force. Yeah. So kind of they were pushing the infantry kind of thing. 
Um, but yeah, so that's kind of where I started. Yeah, I mean, that's super healthy, isn't it? I, I mean, I look back on my time, like I went to the cadets and stuff. And some of the guys that I was at cadets with, I look at like how successful they, they've been. And no matter what anyone tells me, I think that foundation is one of the reasons why that group of people, you know, coming from where they'd come from, ended up being so successful because you literally you take one step left and don't go into cadets and you look at the the same generation in my town uh, and it's a completely different story well it's it's even just starting with respect and it's something so basic like you you take the kids especially from the council estates of dudley and they were feral like Hmm. i probably was as well at the manners of feral cats and you go to this thing and straight away and I'm, i'm from a single parent family I didn't really have that kind of father figure thing either. This isn't going to turn into a show like a Trisha show. But <laughs> straight away, you go to cadets and you had these males, like all my guys were ex-military. And straight away, it was like sort of, and they taught us how to like iron, shave, wash, tie my shoes, like everything like that. These guys did it. Yeah. And um, yeah, they were great guys. It's a, it's a really important part of like any community. I think I think the cadet force is going from like strength to strength over it over the years so you come out of school and obviously you've rotted off your GCSEs probably uh, a lot of us are guilty of of that of that story um who signed the paperwork for you to get you get you in if you were that young oh my mum she was like you eat too much you're off to the army <laughs> I was like yeah bye okay. no like she, she, there wasn't even a concern like I joined in um in fact I had my paperwork signed in 1999 so literally the only thing that was happening really was Kosovo Right. I mean, Northern Ireland had wrapped up. Bosnia was kind of a drinker's tour. And Kosovo was a kind of the only thing that was busy in the world. So my mum didn't have no concerns. Yeah. Uh, so signed me up straight away and off I went. What, what was it that sent you into the, into the regiment that you were in? Like, obviously, you said you were in a, I guess, the local cadet squadron is the local cadet squadron. And, and they're affiliated the way they are. And there's not really anything you can do about that. But well, I didn't, go, bit... I didn't go to the Staffords. I went to um, yeah, Queen's I mean. Bazaars. Like, so yeah. like completely different. Yeah, so I literally rocked up to the uh, recruiting centre in Birmingham. And um, I think I met the RAF first. And uh, I was like, oh, what is it you do, blah, blah, blah. And the army guy was like, you're too tall to be RAF. Come over here. So he just took <laughs> me from that that's desk. That's the thing. <laughs> yeah, I was like, all right, no problem. And... Um, I think he must have been infantry and he said just watch some videos and this challenger 2 thing came on and i was like this like i want to do this this is what i want and so the guy in charge of the whole recruiting office was also queen's well as ours so that was kind of it i got pushed down to that line i went to um harrogate like the foundation college uh, when i was 16 for the year um and yeah obviously you go there and straight away like, it's just a bunch of, I think, I think I was in a 12-man room, and we're all 16. We're all from all over the country. And, yeah, it was a complete eye-opener to what the uh, military is. Yeah. Uh, we don't really, I'll be honest, uh, on, the, on the podcast, we tend to, like, skip through Harrogate, uh, because, obviously, there's a lot to talk about. But what's your sort of perception, you know, of, of where that set you up? So, like, if you take it to the point where you turned up on your actual regiment a year later, you know, what did it give you that that, it, that that other people didn't get? I think even because you, you spend months doing basic education. So just your basic grammar, your basic spells kind of stuff. Like you turn up at regiments and obviously, sorry, you turn up at phase two and then you kind of meet with the guys who come from Winchester 
and you'd be doing like recce reports, this kind of stuff. And straight away, like the education was there. And also like, um, I remember doing three months of military history, like just learning about, um, we did like a lot on the Gulf, the first Gulf War. So obviously Telic and Hurricane happened by this stage. And it was just really cool to kind of see the wider army back to do like a presentation. And obviously you always think very, especially as a trooper, engineer, private airman, you think about your own little unit and just doing this kind of stuff. You're seeing like an army wide, the bigger picture. And I think that helped hugely like going forwards and um, obviously physical, like we were there for a year. So every day fizz. Um, and yeah, like ev all the guys I've met, sorry, all the guys I was with who stayed on are all W02s, W01s now. Like they just seem to always be a year ahead of the guys from Winchester. Not in yeah. all cases, of course, but they're always just that little bit ahead. Yeah. Um, I just couldn't recommend it highly enough. Like it was um, a great experience. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it is a, a solid foundation, as as it says in the title, you know, so, like, that's, um, you know, it's a real positive for, like, again, for, you know, starting off your military career. So, what's it like, like, day one, obviously, you eventually get to turn up, uh, and you end up on the, on the tank, on the, sorry, down in the garages, on the, and you finally get to see a tank for the first time after being in the army for a year. What's, what's that like, day one, turning up on a new unit? Well, we turned up to uh, Bovington, and I got to Bovington September 11th, 2001, 9-11. Yeah. yeah. So we get, in, we get like doing introduction day, then it hits about three o'clock, and the full screws are looking after us, like, get to the naffy, and we spent the rest of the day, like, watching the towers, watching the news, watching that kind of stuff. And the next morning, the troop sergeant comes out, and it's like, life ain't going to be the same. Like, everything's going to change now. And I was like, my fucking timing, like, good God, it couldn't have been any worse. I was looking yep. forward to going off to Podievo or Pristina and drinking with the locals. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of, it, it, was, it was good in a way because even the instructors and the civvy instructors, it kind of just give everyone a snap. Like, they must have had something that the brigadier or colonel in charge of Drac must have said, right, get these guys, it's going to be, stuff's going to be happening soon. So, um, First thing I did was a Challenger 2 driver's course, which was two months. Um, I did that the whole way through. Uh, then I went and did basic signals. And then randomly, um, I was asked to go and uh, go to the tank museum and drive a, drive a Challenger 2. So when you do the Challenger 2 driving, you drive a vehicle that's not got a turret on. Right. And as I say, I'm six foot five. So the first time I jump in a wagon with a turret, we're driving along and the turrets swinging side to side. And when you drive a Challenger 2, you pretty much, and you're hatched down, you lie flat. And I get cracked in the head by something. I'm like, whoa, what the fuck? Like, and like I say, I say to the commander, I say, we've got to stop, we've got to stop. And my crew guard helmet had a massive crack down the side. And it turns out six foot five was too tall. And nobody, for some reason, this had never been a problem. So um, me and another guy I shared a room with called Eddie Grant, he was six foot seven from Trinidad, Tobago. We went to um, the HQ and they were like, guys, we're so sorry. Like, you can't go to your times to your regiments. Like, where do you want to go? And I was like, oh, like, I said, right, I want to go to the Army Air Corps. And Eddie was like, I want to go to the Royal Engineers. It's like, right, cool. And he said, right, if you, it, this was like mid-December. And he was like, right, if you guys go to 9th, 12th Lancers, you can go on Christmas leave today. So we both joined 9th, 12th Lancers. <laughs> and that was kind of how I ended up in the, like, 9th Lancers, people that don't know, is like a 
armoured reconnaissance regiments um, and it kind of opened up a lot more paths really like a lot, lot better journey yeah so obviously happenstance or the fact that you're just a tall dude sends you across there and obviously you want to get yourself some Christmas leave so making making mate, sound making sound educated choices one week of leave mate was like yeah I don't care about the rest of my career I don't yeah. care about the army air corps like I'm going to 9 12 Lancers they sound brilliant yeah and that was it mate like I was I was off I came back off leave then obviously because I didn't challenge two I had to then go and do CVRT driver training yeah and um yeah like we finished in April then went to regiment well obviously you're a big dude and and, and that's obviously become apparent it, what's it like going on to like CVRT then well I couldn't drive scimitar like I just could not get in it but like Spartan Sultan and all that kind of stuff like the support vehicles I had no problem if anything there was more space I found in the um the Spartans and that so as soon as I got to regiments it was like I would never I was never going to go the traditional routes through being like a um scimitar driver and all that kind of stuff um I still had to do similar gunnery to like get to my next pay grade. So I did the gunnery course, but even though I knew I was never going to be on a scimitar, I was always going to be support troops, which was like Dems. And as time went on, TACP and uh, snipers and all that kind of stuff. Like it kind of, over the years I was in developed massively, but I always knew I wasn't that traditional reconnaissance route. Yeah. Um, so what's your first deployment? So you obviously you've, you've had to transfer regiments and I, I'm assuming that you can see a cycle coming up ahead of you once you've come across. Well, I, I got to regiments and it was still, it was 2002. Yeah. So obviously Iraq hadn't happened yet. Afghanistan wasn't really kinetic. It was kind of just some guys had rotated through, they took Kabul and that was kind of it. So I got to regiments in April 2002 and I went off to Canada for six months which was brilliant playing up for as a 17 year old, like God, you couldn't want any more. Um, and then we came back in uh, January, we came back in December and it was kind of the build up to Telic one. Yeah. And I, I was, I was with the desert rats. Uh, so we were like, brilliant. Like we're going to the first Telic, like it's going to be brilliant. And our entire brigade deployed without my regiment. Wow. So I don't think, like before I got there, I think my regiment had failed some like some tests, and there was obviously better regiments out there. Like I don't know the whole truth. We heard rumours, and it's fair enough. But uh, Queen's Dragoon Guards replaced us, and so we went on the fire strikes. So oh, yeah. we got we got re-rolled down to Senilaga to drive the Green Goddesses. Um, <laughs> then got deployed to Sheffield. Like oh god, it was. I mean, the, the, these fire engines, I mean, people that don't know, like, the fire brigade went on strike in, like, 2002, 2003, and the army covered. And we had these vehicles from, like, 1960. They'd been in, like, mothballed for 25, 30 years. Yeah. So we had to rock up to these fires with a police escort front and back because we could only drive 20 miles an hour. We'd be there with our Gore-Tex melting next to fire. And, um, yeah, it was kind of like, it, it was a jolly... But um, we got back from that and then kind of got tipped off that we were deploying on Telic 3. So that'll be the back end of 2003. And that's when I first deployed. Yeah, I, re <clears throat> I, we, I talked about it to somebody else on another podcast about the, the fire strikes and everything and, the, and the, the makeup of those vehicles and like the fact oh. that they had like wooden floors on them and you could like see through the floor when you were like 
clutching and stuff like going around. Mate, it was wild. Like we're rocking through Sheffield, and one person had to hang out the side ringing a bell. <laughs> and you, you think like, back, like Jesus, we had a high vis jacket on, and your Gore-Tex, like, yeah, get in that fire, you'll be all right. Yeah, be sound. And then nine times out of ten, yeah, we'll get to fires, and if it's too big, people just like leave it, let it burn. And like, right, cool. But we're <laughs> we're based opposite like Sheffield University, and you have one person on stag at the front gate at a TA centre, and um until it was like three o'clock every day. Then it'd be like 25 guys on stag because all the students were coming out. <laughs> it was like waving at the women and that. And it, yeah, it was just, it was, it was a good time. We were based at a manor top, like a TA centre. And um, it, it was a good laugh, but it was kind of annoying. Like every night we were watching Telic One on TV. Yeah. So we were, we were watching the invasion and all that. And we're like, oh God, like our, our whole brigade is there. Like we should have been the reconnaissance for that. Um. But yeah, we, we, we got we got our turn. Well, got plenty of chances to do other stuff. Yeah. So you first crank of the handles on, on Telic three, and and what position are you in when you go over there? Um, I go out. Oh Jesus! I'm with um, guided weapons troop. Um, so that used to be the old striker, the CBRT that had the bin lift up and the missiles fire out. But when we deployed. Um, we didn't take striker. We were on Spartan. Um, and basically, we deployed to Alamara, Camp Abenaji. Um, and our job for the first three months was patrol the Iranian border because we knew weapons were coming over. So it was pretty cool. We were, um, working, in, we were working as we were supposed to, like Desert Rat, proper World War II style. We were out in four vehicle troops, massive areas of the Iranian border, flat deserts. And... Um, yeah, it was great. We we were out for like five, six, seven weeks getting replenned by helicopters and SHQ coming out and that like it was proper. You're like, yeah, this is pretty cool. Um, yeah. Totally the wrong, totally the wrong vehicles. Because yeah. every time we'd see like a Hilux come over the border, they'd see us hit reverse and we're trying to, armoured vehicles trying to chase these people. Like, what do we do if we can get near them? Like, but it, it was still good. We obviously passed the int up and that kind of stuff and but at that time, I don't remember us having any air assets the entire time. I don't remember seeing any fast air, any drones, like anything like that. So it made the job a lot more difficult. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know there's a lot of similar jobs that have gone on on both sides of that, that country, obviously, Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, certain assets have been used to huge effect, like yeah. following like smuggling lines and, and, and things like that so to hear that it, it's kind of sad but and again but like again the, the vehicles on the ground had changed up a lot by the time we were, we were doing that kind of job where you know the vehicle you could we were driving by that point could do like 100 miles an hour across the desert so there was no there was yeah. no getting away at, at that stage so is that six that's six months or seven months away on that one so so that was seven months we spent the first three months up on the um border doing up snowden and then kind of towards Christmas time, we got re-rolled. So we got sent down to Safwan um, on the southern border, like it's the border town between Kuwait and Iraq. And we were training the Iraqi border guards. So the entire regiment kind of got split up to do various other tasks. Um, there was a few riots happening in Alamara. This is before it had gone massively. I mean, the only thing we knew about really was Telic 2 was the six RMP that were killed. And that was out of Abenaji. But apart from that, it was pretty quiet. Like we could still happily roll around in berets and we we're all in Land Rovers with no sides on, bit of caging on the side, stop bricks being chucked at us. And that's kind of how it was. And then one day I was driving from Safran into Basra and I think it might have been the Paras. They came past us, this patrol, and the back end of a Land Rover was missing. 
and apparently it was like one of the first IUDs and I was like shit like yeah we were and you would have thought oh brilliant I'd have rushed vehicles out to us but it just there was nothing in the British Army's like fleet that could do anything like that so they sent out the green snatches from Northern Ireland yeah so they tipped off still with the telephone numbers down the side no air conditioning like there you go so our troop got given a Pajero Nissan Pajero and one of these green snatches and yeah it was just it was just completely dodgy like it was um we were just not set up for I remember being in a riot in Alamara and when we were doing all the training all the riot training was Northern Ireland based because that's the only sort of um knowledge we had had to do with riots and then in Alamara we had this baseline out and it just went tits up straight away like it was just not the sort of environment that Northern Ireland tactics worked so it was um the army were caught massively with a pants down I'd say Telic 3, Telic 4, Telic 5 like yeah 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 going into I obviously I remember being in like Kuwait and stuff and like driving around in like soft skin Land Rovers, but going into the city in a snatch and I was just like what, what the fuck are we doing this is oh mate terrible freaking, freaking like you're just like yeah in, in, interesting times obviously huge development after that like uh, and and you sort of mentioned it at the start where you know the time when you joined up it was very quiet but like there was a the ramp up in the way that we trained and the way that we were supplied changed so dramatically over the next sort of you know 10 to 15 years um it was just those operations were just in, an incredible catalyst for for positive change um within the military you you come home from there obviously huge varied experience and things like that where where do you go to next are you eligible for promotion at that time when you're returning home no no i mean i get back home i'm still 19 so um we deploy again so I deployed 2003, 4, 5, 6, and 8 yeah. to Iraq. So as soon as we get back from Telic 3, we're told we're deploying on Telic 7. So the sort of rotation starts again. We have a few months where it's just a bit of back to basics, a bit of adventure training, and we roll straight back into it again. So this time I go off down a signals route. I go advanced signals, um, and I go to like um, reg regimental headquarters and do that kind of stuff. Was that something you looked into, or was it just... There's something somebody else saw in you. Yeah, it was just sort of, um, I, I think if you're from a combat unit, um, oh God, I, I don't want to sound bad, but if someone sees you can string a sentence together, you kind of get pushed towards comms positions and that kind of stuff. And that sounds, a bit, sounds a bit bitchy, but like it, it is that way. I don't think so. I think, I, I think people spot talent, you know, and, and rightly so, you know, um, they, they, they looked at me and said, that's a bloke who can sit on his ass for 12 hours straight. He'll be good for a radio stag. Yeah, he's great. He's great for a chat. Yeah, yeah. That, that give, bloke, get him a radio. That bloke will spin dips and sit there for 12 hours straight drinking brews. So yeah. I kind of pushed down that path and then deployed on Telic 7. So that was um, back in the 2005. And I was with the like Colonel's TAC group. Um, so again, we were, we were based out of Shiba, which is like the big logistics base yeah. on the edge of Basra. Um, and we were we had Basra Rural South Battle Group, so basically south of Basra all the way down was kind of our area. Al Four, Safwan, Umkazar, Azabaya, and all these kind of places. So anyone that moved through the area was supposed to talk to us. Obviously, Americans never did; they just did their own thing. Um, but we had Dan Bat, the Danish guys, with us, and they were awesome. So yeah, yeah. Like 
an AO that size, and obviously you, at that point you must have. I mean, I know that um, Schreiber had like his own mini mini Heathrow or, or heliport there that that would service it in and out of um, both Kuwait and uh, Bajra Apod as well. Like, what is like as a battle group? How much do you know about like the airspace that's going on around you? Considering it's yours, really. So at that stage. Um, my regiment still didn't have attack P and the whole time. So basically I'd spend two thirds of the time um, taking the Colonel round and we were basically his, his Rover group. And the other, the other third of the time would work in the ops room. Like if we were stood down, would go and stag on and help in the ops room, that kind of stuff. So that's when we could kind of see our battle space and all that. And even the entire time then, I just don't remember fast air ever being a thing. I mm. no doubt it was out there, but it just still wasn't massively used. And by this time, Telic 7, like, we're taking casualties like it's kicked off. Like, if you go back through 2006, 2007, mm. Iraq, I mean, from the 179 dead, a lot were over this two-year period. And 2005, in fact, as well. And, um, yeah, I just don't remember it being a thing. So, um, yeah, it, it wasn't really till like, Telic 12 that I really saw all these airframes. Um, I mean, no doubt there was guys out on Telic 7. I know uh, Jimmy Hilton and John Mason, they were TACP and they were up in um, Alamara. And I know they were doing a lot of stuff on Telic 7. But down south, especially because we were rural, we'd just never seen any airframes. Yeah. It, it, it seems when you hear those stories that, you know, there was there was air, obviously, in Badger City and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, you talk about those cities up north um, and like Ramadi and stuff like that around like 2000 and you know, six and seven and stuff. It was wild. Like, you know, that, that, that battle was raging and, and, you know, the air, certainly rotary air and things like that. And was hugely supportive. Oh yeah. I mean, and we, we, were, we were having a completely different war to what the Americans were. Um, I mean, I remember Telic three. And so this was early 2004. I saw, we used to get down to Tampa and watch the convoys go North and we'd pop across the border into Kuwait to Navstar to get some scoff. And then one day we watched this convoy come down, back down, which we never normally saw. And it was probably three miles of destroyed vehicles, burnt out vehicles. And we were like, shit, like the Americans are obviously getting a hard time up north. And that was kind of the first time till then. We, we hadn't even had any IDS. We had nothing. And we're like, this, this, is, this is a jolly. This is pretty easy. And it's just that first convoy I saw come back down of these destroyed American vehicles. I was like, wow, like they're getting a licking up north. Yeah. Coming off, coming off the back of that tour, and obviously being a, a singular, and you mentioned obviously some some big names like Jim is a is a well known like character throughout, you know, well I guess the artillery and the RAF regiment and you know the ALI community for sure he's definitely well known. But uh, did you like? And then you're saying there's like no TAC P around. When was it that you sort of were exposed to forward air controllers of any kind or a TAC P? So I met, every day I used to go into the um, welfare tent on our camp on Telic 7, as we should be a, a signals guy sat there. Every single day I went in. And one day I was like, mate, I was like, what do you do? Like, you're always in here. He's like, I'm, I'm with Attack P. I was like, never heard of it. I don't know what Attack P is. Tell me about it. And he was like, hotels, hire vehicles, traveling <laughs> the world, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, mate, like, this sounds incredible. And he was like, yeah, like, keep, keep your head out for it. Listen. Like, listen, if you hear anything about it, sign yourself up to it. Purely by, like, a look, two weeks later, we're working a night stag shift in the um, battle group headquarters. And 
one of the jobs six o'clock in the morning was go around mop out the offices sweep them like as a trooper like yeah cool and my mate was like mate go and look on the adjutant's desk so i've got the adjutant's desk and literally there's like a folder in front of it postings that need to be filled and i was like oh i'll have a quick scan and straight away like first page i saw tac p signaler and i was like right i was like i want that but how do i tell the adj that i want that three or four days later we're driving down to al4 it's like a three-hour drive and by pure luck i have the adj sat next to me so i'm like this is the time this is i've got to sell it and i was like oh yeah i love jets i love blah 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 and the only thing i knew about aircraft was top gun and i saw the red arrows once so it was like this really hard set. Oh, three hours, mate. I was talking about your case. Oh, mate, I'm bluffing the whole way down. Like, just making up shit. Like, he must have been like, oh, this guy knows a lot of stuff. Or this guy's a fucking idiot. I don't know which. <laughs> but then, like, we drive back three days later. He's like, oh, Galf, come here. And he was like, and I had to pretend to be shocked. He was like, I really need this position filled. Tack B, he's on promotion. And I was like, oh, God, like, oh, that's so, that's so out of the blue. Oh, this sounds brilliant. And that's it. Like, so I got that like two months before the end of the tour. I only said, when you get back, you're going to go to attack B. And I was like, brilliant, like sold. So I was like, where's it going to be? It was like, I don't know yet. I'd been in Germany at this stage, maybe five years on a camp called Hona, which is like Belsen concentration camp. It's at the side of it. It's a pretty grim place. There's one town down the road with three bars and a garrison of 5,000. I was like, brilliant. And get away from Hona very last day of tour um in fact no when we first come back we went out some pre pre tour um, post tour leave get back to germany so right here's your posting order and i'm walking to the hq the lads are like oh you lucky bastard i'm like yeah see you later wankers just giving the shit to the lads as i walk past get my posting order and i'm posted to hona and i'm posted 500 meters down the road oh man RHA. beautiful so I get posted to a third World Horse Artillery Regiment and they hate my regiment. Like all the fighting in town for years was 9th, 12th and 3 RHA. And I'm like, oh God, like I'm going to get stabbed in my sleep. So I had to do this walk of shame with like a trolley and all my MFO boxes on down this road to 3 RHA. <laughs> As I get to 3 RHA, people see I'm 9th, 12th and people start giving me abuse. I'm like, I'm going to die here. Um, so yeah, this big glorious posting. I literally moved down the road to the same garrison. So who, yeah, who was your tap P at the time? Who? Um, as I was leaving, it was uh, Jimmy Hilton, um, and it was John Mason, um, a guy called Stig. Uh, then I can never remember. There's, there's a rifles officer, but it was literally there. I think him and Jimmy were obviously at the end of their kind of time. Yeah. So they were there for maybe two or three weeks later. Um, and I pull up to this tack P and it's like the bastard children of the artillery. We're like, we're in an old stable block and it stinks. There's obviously something dead under the floor. I walk in, there's some tattered old jet posts on the wall. I'm like, oh, what have I done? And I go through to the stores. There's like a warrior, warrior armored vehicle. All the tools are on the shelf. And I go in and go, oh, like we've got a warrior. They're like, no. I was like, well, what are those tools for? They're like, the warrior. I was like, so we have got a warrior. They're like, no. I was like, right, okay. I said, so... Do we get a warrior? I said, yeah. I said, so who's a warrior driver? He's like, we don't have one. And I was like, right, okay, I can see where this is going. So, of course, I found myself on a warrior course. Mm-hmm. But literally, the only, t- the only different piece of kit I-, I noticed was like one, 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 seven. That was it. There was no other Gucci kit, just this one, 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 seven. And, in fact, when I first walked in, I marched in, stamped in, saluted, 
and the captain was like, oh, God, no, 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 stop that. Stop that right away. He's like, <laughs> this is my name. Don't do that shit. And straight away for me, coming from a, a regiment, was like, all right, that's a bit of a, that's a bit different. And he went, oh, by the way, we've got an exercise tomorrow. I was like, oh, bastard. So the next morning, I rocked down, webbing, Bergen, helmet, everything. He's like, no, 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 mate. One, one set of uniform, three sets of civvies. And this vehicle pulled up like a brand new tour rag, Volkswagen tour rag. Like, this is what we're using for exercise. I was like, right, okay. Like, this sounds pretty fun. And we went off to um, Marham. And we stayed in a hotel in Kings Lynn. And literally, even, I, I was like, we're going home. I was like, oh, who are we working with? And he's like, I don't know yet. And we literally rocked up to Marham. It's like, oh, we're 617 TAP from Germany. Um, do you guys want any tax... Um, ATAC support for the week and then it was like a mud fest everybody wanted a piece of it but it's just so like no planning it whatsoever and we went up to um Muckleborough Tank Museum on the Cromer coast like North Norfolk we rocked up to the guy there was like hi this is who we are we had a boot full of duty-free cigarettes and whiskey it was like mate can we base ourselves here for the week there's loads of World War II tanks knocking around and that was like there's a big hill but like, this is perfect and yeah we kind of sat on this hillside for a week eating ice cream he went down to the local town chrome and put a sign out saying jets operating at my museum all week so he was happy we were happy and yeah yeah it was a good time but still i was like this is cake and arse this whole tack p thing like this is there's no sort of routine to it this is mental yeah that those old those old school bootlegging days man I, I, oh mate <laughs> trying to trying to catch Kaz it, 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 it was like sticking uh how do I describe it you know remember the, that fly paper you used to get and you used to pull it out and it was sticking yeah, mate. Being a, a tube yeah back in the day being a uh, attack P was like that you'd pull it out and you just spin it around around in your head and if you got a jet you were like yes okay let's do some fucking controlling it was we, wild we, we sat, again we were sat on the hill and we just finished um the tornado serial and we had like two hours till the next one and this harrier just comes screaming down the beach like tilted towards us looking and like we shit ourselves like oh fuck we've got another cereal here and just heard nothing this jet just then disappeared then like two hours later this phone starts ringing it's like who are you guys like blah 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 and it was like i think it must be number one squadron and we're like oh we're 617 tap peers like right have you got free space and then we had like loads of harriers shucked in at us and it was literally they must have just had the main net they heard what was going on came down for a, a scout saw a satin nail getting shit tans eating ice cream and that was it like loads of harriers got chucked at us as well it was just so um yeah so bizarre the whole thing yeah how many uh sort of how many training exercises and like and what sort of integration did you guys do with the, like the others fires elements or even like the companies that you were going to support up until the point where you actually deployed so the first year um, we did a few um, flying rhinos and I remember going up to Scotland we were using the ranges at Tain then we went over to the uh, west coast it must be around Gairlock somewhere around that way and again that was all just tapis and this was obviously the time um, Herrick 4 was happening with 16 air assaults and kind of at the end of that those guys just did a Herculean fight out there going into Hellman's and kind of at the back end of that it was like right this is serious you attack p like this is really needed and then it kind of like we, we got a new boss by that time a guy called gaz powell from the rough edge um he was our new boss and he was brilliant as well like super chilled out 
and we had a new 2IC guy called Steve Moore um, from 3RHA, who a lot of people probably know as well. Again, really good guy. Um, and that year, so 2007, was when we really started being invited to stuff. Uh, straight away, we went down to Grafenveer. Um, I think it must have been like an artillery brigade exercise, but we're down in Grafenveer and Steve hadn't long passed. And uh, I think he needed one more night serial to pass to get qualified. And for the first time ever, someone passed me in Islid. It's like, mate, use your MVG, point that, the jet will see it, easy serial. So I'm like, yeah, no problem, no problem. Like, Steve's a bit nervous, I'm a bit nervous. Sat in a bitch black. We have some US Rangers with us. Um, and his jet comes in, and I'm waving the Islid, like, oh, mate, like, I can't seem to line up my MVG with it. So Steve's getting ratty with me, I'm getting ratty with him. Like, we're not, close, we're not far off fighting, to be honest, in the control tower. And the jet's like, jet's like, I'm bingo, I've got to go. So Steve looks at me like, what the fuck? And I'm like, oh, mate, I'm so sorry. He was like, what's wrong? I said, the Islid just didn't work. So I hand him the Islid, and he opened it and popped the lid open. And oh, I was like... Oh, oh, deadly, mate. I was like, oh, mate. I was like, it was like hot fuzz. I was like, how much ice cream do I need to buy everybody? And like, he was, he was snapping. And like, it was kind of like knocked the chip off my shoulder a little bit because I think you do as TAC-P, you kind of, your sideburns get longer and you're a bit more scruffier and you kind of have this like buzz about you. And yeah, it kind of, I was like, yeah, you're a sprog, like get a grip of your life. But it was still yeah. fun. We had, a good, we had a good week in Grafenveer. We had, we we're marking targets with 50 cal for the Apaches and all that. Like it was really good. It's 2007's kind of time when it starts to get a bit serious. And we're like, all right, this is pretty cool. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a reason, you know, as long as you're pushing and, 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 you know, like you said, you know, you give yourself, you go away from that and you give yourself a good, like, verbal or mental kicking about it. And, you know, and it's, it's the first and last time it ever happens. That's what's important. And, and I know what you're saying about, like, you know, that sort of push to one side sort of thing for the tap P and, and, and the, the way maybe, like, we're perceived and stuff. And that's maybe part of the podcast is to get rid of some of that stigma because, you know, the idea is that you are like you are left to your own devices because you're extremely professional and then that the fact that if you make a mistake you know you're gonna you're gonna learn from it and you're gonna tear yourself apart and you know it's the kind of thing that would never happen again because oh, oh yeah mate you've I mean, been you've I been ne- chosen we, we and you've been given enough rope to hang yourself kind of thing yeah and, and that was it mate i mean i felt bad because it was like his last chance to get his night cereal luckily like two or three nights um further on he didn't take me in for some bizarre reason. He took someone else. Uh, he, got, he got his qualification. But, um, yeah, and, and that's it. Like, when I think back at the time, um, there was me and a driver. The driver was from the Royal Tank Regiment. And those two must have been only 24. Mm. That's Paolo Raffredge guy. must have been 26. And Steve, buddy, must have only been 27, 28 as well. And you think back now, I'm 36 now, and you think back and think, we were kids, but still having all this power to weld yeah and it was um yeah it was bizarre but um because the like the artillery are famously bullshitty they kind of hated tack p i remember one day i was walking with gaz the raffredge flight lieutenant and some sergeant major shouted me he's like oi corporal elvis get the fuck over here and gaz <laughs> just snapped my side ears were down the bottom of my ears and gaz just snapped he's like you never talk to my guys like that again blah, blah, blah. If you want to discipline my guys, I know how to do that. And I thought, brilliant. Like, Gaz was completely on side. And his son made to just shut up. But that didn't help our relationship with 3RHA. 
it wasn't until we deployed on Telic 12, we become really close with um, their J battery, which was a gun battery, and then N battery, which is like a Jimmy Hilton's battery. So yeah. Jimmy Hilton had gone back and made this reconnaissance battery and kind of we integrated a lot more. But up until then, we'd had 18 months just being just wild dogs, just kind of, you yeah, know, no one told us what to do. And Gazette was like the umbrella that protects from any bullshit. And yeah, it was yeah. a good time. Yeah, I think it's really, I mean, it's good. It's good to hear the, the, that those stories so that everyone can see how far it's come. Like my experience um, with the Royal Artillery, although they are a very different beast to what my sort of background would have been, the the leadership, some key leadership, really believed in like joint fires, really believed in integration and that like that trickle down effect. So you got you know you got the shit from like the the certain departments where it'd be like yeah you fucking JTAX you're always away. And, and I didn't know if they were like giving me a hard time or themselves a hard time. Cause they would be like, you're always living in hotels and like, you're never in uniform. And I was like, I don't, I can't hear any criticism, but what, you know, when the, when the criticism starts, let me know. Um, but that's a bit tongue, a bit tongue in cheek, I'm sure. But I remember specifically the chief of staff at the time of one arty, she was just her, her whole mindset towards joint fires. So I'm not just talking about JTACing, but like the whole joint fires and the targeting process was just so forward leaning that we got taken care of and we were considered part of the family. And, and to hear like where we've had to come from to get to that shows you like how far um, that's progressed to that, you know, she hadn't been a JTAC, she'd been a BC and obviously she understood heavily what was required of attack P, et cetera. Um, but just having that influence in the higher echelons, you know, just brought everyone together. So other than like banter, you know, the, the regiments start to, to massively come together. So you said like, obviously when you deployed, talk us uh, through a little bit, how that, that structure looks like and what, and what it looks like deploying as a tap P back then. So if I go six months back, we were, we, we were six, one, seven tap P the desert rat tap P and that was kind of it. And we, one day we got told, right, you're off to 16 air assault. And that was for Harry Gates. Right. So it's like, right, you're off to um, Colchester. Um, so they want to attack P, you're going. So we pushed off to Colchester, to Gujarat Barracks, and we spent maybe a month with 16 air assaults, like doing the exercises ready for Harry Gates. And then literally a month into it, they were like, your brigade wants you back, you've got to go back to Germany. It's like, your brigade's now deploying on Telic 12, they want to attack P. And we're like, oh, like really pissed off because we wanted that Afghan kind of thing. Yeah. And we'd, we, we, we were fitting in well with 16 air assaults. Um, they, they were good guys. Their tack peas were really. We, we were learning so much off them. They were they were super professional. Yeah. Like I'm not, I'm not saying we weren't, but it wasn't until we were them we were learning so much what a driver, what a signal should do, how you should work as a four man team. But yeah, so we we get pushed back to Germany. And we got thrown over to Canada straight away. So we get given a warrior, and obviously the boss is Raffredge. He's got no sort of inkling of what armored warfare is. So we get pushed into this. It's not even um, a telecoheric training package. No. It's a Cold War training package. So we kind of get pushed over there and we're like, we felt like spare tits again. Mm -hmm. Like we, we had 617 Squadron um, from Lossiemouth deployed with us. And uh, they sent, so every week they'd send a pilot to come and live in the ground with us. So every week they'd send a pilot down to live in the back of a warrior to see what it's like for JTACs. And uh, we get sent a guy, first week, a guy called Yorkie, who was a pilot from the 617 Squadron. 
is like a small fat bloke. I don't know how he was a pilot. He was a really good guy. And he kept talking about fast jet cock and how women loved him. I was like, I don't believe that, mate. But uh, <laughs> the scariest thing in my life, we let him drive one of the Warriors. He was like, yeah, jump in, mate. This is how it works. And I was sat on the deck. So I was like, yeah, just go for it. Oh, mate, pilots do not do slow driving either. And then the next <laughs> week, we had someone else come down and he, he came down with a present of st- like a big box of stuff. It was just filled with porn magazines and hot dogs. It's like, oh, it's a gift from Yorkie. I was like, oh, brilliant. But this other guy, he hated it. He had the worst time of his life. Like one night, three o'clock in the morning, we're bogged in near to the turret and open the back door and he's snoozing, hand him a shovel. Like, come on, mate, we're digging. He's like, I'm an officer. I was like, I don't give a fuck, mate. Like, we're we're bogged in here. We need all hands to deck. And he hated us. But it was cool the second week because Yorkie then went back to Calgary and all the serials during the second week, Yorkie was the pilot for it. So he was coming down so low, like nearly scorching the grass for us and that. And yeah, really kicked the arse out of it. But that was kind of the first time we started um, working with um, Third Wallace Artillery. And it was the first time me and Steve went and did like a... He, he, Steve, forgive me for the Islid thing by this stage. And we went in the Gazelle and he was doing live fire for the artillery. Uh-huh. So we were sat like a kilometre back in a Gazelle. And Steve was calling in um, just Artie. And that's the first time I kind of saw Tack P do anything but forward air controlling. Right. And he was... In, oh, mate, he was incredible. Like... I high-fived him at the end. Like, I was just watching this guy work. Like, his, his gunnery was just incredible. I was like, all right, yeah, fair enough. Um, so that was kind of the first time we got involved with everybody. So that was kind of cool. Like, we stopped being the bastard children by the end of 2007. Yeah. Do you, do, so you got to go away with them, right? Even though it was like you'd trained for the Cold War. Yeah, yeah. So so, so we deployed on Telic 12 then, um, again, with the Desert Rats, 7th Armour Brigade. And um, we, we weren't J battery, um, but we were kind of very, they were the battery that had the gun line. And um, by this stage in Iraq, like everything had kind of closed down. All the other bases, I think there were still some lads at Chateau Arab Hotel. But Basel Palace had closed, Alamara had closed. And um, Charge of the Knights, just finished Charge of the Knights, obviously was the operation to take back Basra because for some bizarre reason we thought, they could be trusted to look after it. So that seemed to have loads of kinetic. We, we, we deployed and that kind of was really kinetic and we just got at the tail end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were like, as we got there, we'd had more airframes we'd ever seen doing any sort of training. It was brilliant, like, right, this is your thing. And then by this stage, I was with a rifles officer called Ian Sherwood mm-hmm. and he was a reserve army, army officer and he used to do two years of, two years of like being with the army and then a year surfing. And like he didn't give a shit about the army, he didn't give a shit about rank, but he was like a really good forward air controller. So me and him got pushed off to um, a camp called Camp Sard. And we were the only people really working remotely in the entire British region. So um, yeah, we, we had a lot of stuff pushed to us. But we, we, we were like the back corner of, a, back corner of a, a base, like an Iraqi base. And it was just, there was just nothing going on. Like every night we'd be on the roof, like we'd sleep on the roof every night. There's no camp there. We're on cot beds under the stars eating rations um when the lynx crews used to come past these feel sorry for us and bring us like zoo and nuts magazines and some chocolate and coke and all that kind of stuff and yeah again i was with the um the anglians the co tap group and yeah again that they're really really brilliant guys to work with what sort of um obviously coming off the back of that and obviously you sound like super fired up about that time in your life 
at what stage do you decide it, it you've enough's enough and 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 you've had your fill and you're gonna and you're gonna get out well it, it wasn't even that it, it was obviously at the time i don't know if it's changed now like i don't know if thankfully there's a career path for a driver singular because even the first year when i went to tac p there was no sort of i was like oh who's going to train me there was no training it was like yeah. oh just watch and then I got sent down to Leeming to do the um, target designator two-day course. And my boss was like, Gaz was like, yeah, mate, it's a green box. Just point it. There's no pressure. Like, cue to me the next day. I got Sinks and Ben screaming at me. I'm trying to do maths and angles on this thing. And I was like, you, you set me up here, you bastard. Um, but that was the kind of the first thing. Even like the rover terminal. Like a week before we deployed to Telic, it was the first time I saw a rover terminal. And we set this rover terminal up. I was like, we got any air? It's like, no. I was like, right, so we're deploying now. I think it works. We're going to go. He's like, yeah, that's it. We're going. I was like, right, brilliant. And it just seems so cake and arse. Even at that stage, it wasn't until we got into theatre. We're like, right, we've got a job here. Um, but anyway, yeah. So I, I had a two-year post originally. Then I got extended for another year. So I'd done my three years. Then I got back to um, Garrison, back to regiment, like February 2009. We just had a six weeks off. And uh, just nobody knew who I was. So whilst I was away, the regiment had been given a TACP. All the CAV regiments started having their own TACPs. And I was like, well, I'm a shoe in here. Like, I'll go back and I'll be a, I'll be a, a JTAF. Like, why wouldn't I be? And uh, I get back to regiments. And the way the regiment was set up was like, there was four squadron headquarters around this parade square. Every Monday morning, each squadron formed outside their office. And I was just sitting in the middle of the parade square. I was like, I don't know. No one's told me who, I'm, who I belong to here. So afterwards, I go to HQ. I'm like, who am I with? They're like, oh, you're A-Squadron. Who are you? And I was like, oh, Corporal Garvin. Like, yeah, yeah, you're A-Squadron. And I go to A-Squadron, walk into the office. And I just, I just walk into the office to the second lieutenant. And I go, you're right, boss. And behind me, I see something move. And the sergeant major just sprinting at me. Oh, the fuck are you? You just walk into these offices. You don't salute, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, I'm back with the army. Like, I'm back with the army properly. And I was like, braced up, like, oh, Jesus, yeah, fair enough. And I was like, oh, like, where do you want me? He's like, you're off to a um, military prison to work there for six months. And I was like, what? They're like, yeah, you're going down to Fallon Bustle Detention Centre? I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I've just, I've got all this experience. Like, our tactic doesn't have anyone. At the time, it was like, there's a couple of guys who had been to Afghanistan doing forward air controlling. And I think Jesse James had just started this kind of thing. I was like, surely you want me to go to TACP? Like, no, mate, um, you're down there for six months. So I was like, right, okay. So, like, it gets, like, eight months later, and I'm still working at the detention centre. Because I knew all the, like, you know, yourself in regiments, the squadron leaders and officers turn over that quickly. They do a few years at regiment and go off to do desk jobs. And then a squadron leader came back. He's like, oh, mate like what's going on I was like I work at the detention centre he's like no you fucking don't like you're coming back you're coming back today and he took me back into the squadron but I was just done by that stage like everything had gone out of me and I kind of clung on for about eight months I, I was in a javelin troop I was um, like a Spartan commander and we had a jav, jav um, pair in the back I just checked out mate like after TACP like, yeah, that was it. I wanted to stay down that path. Like, that was it for me. If, if it wasn't that, I couldn't see myself doing anything else. And yeah, yeah that was it, mate. Like, again, I was in Canada and my vehicle broke. I got took back to camp and I just went to find a terminal, seven clicks to heaven. I was gone. Like, that yeah. was it. Roger that. 
I, I think that's an important story to be told because we've lost a lot of guys out, out because of that, out right. of our community because of that. And I think they are doing a better job of it. I, I'm not going to be like overly critical. There, is a, there isn't a career path yet, um, but they are being a lot better about like, you know, lining people up so that they know that they can, you know, that I think they're trying to look at people and say, well, could this person be a JTAC? You know, does he or she even have the right cap badge or the prerequisite like line to get to get there uh, and that's the kind of person they're trying to put forward um towards jtac i would say to anyone listening if you are struggling at all obviously uh, reach out to danny he can give you some like of his own experiences and and or reach out to myself through messenger or whatever and if we can support you obviously we have points of contact um and support you being in that world or staying in that world i can't promise anything but i can certainly talk to someone and say hey this person's struggling to be in that space um because we don't want to lose good people you're right if you're fired up about being in uh, in the joint community and in and in the close air support community we don't want to lose those people because that's experience wasted and also potential wasted yeah and it, it wasn't even like oh it's a cool job i loved it like i genuinely mm. loved it yeah like i speak about it now 12 years later and I, I start rambling I'm like oh god like it was so good and yeah like it, it just it just as I say from the age of five I wanted to be a soldier I was going to do my 22 I was going to do everything that was my life and then just coming back and just being like yeah all right mate yeah yeah cheers no yeah get down to tension center and I was like that was my regiment though no, that's my regiment in nutshell that's why my regiment no longer exists like it was just um so poorly managed but um, we 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 had Jesse James who was my regiment and the, that guy is an absolute legend. I know we went to Subfac, then he was an instructor down at Lehman, and um, yeah. he's out in Ab- he's out in Abu Dhabi now. Um, he works for the uh, UAE military doing JTAC stuff for them still. And um, yeah, so so it's good that we our regiment before it kind of imploded did get some really good guys out into the arena. Yeah, and and uh, Jesse was the school sergeant major when I went through on my uh, on my basic course. And he put a post up uh, the other day on on Facebook about uh, showing him picking a bomb out of uh, out of the ground, uh, and he dropped off a Harrier. Um, I think he got a few comments underneath because uh, they all thought it was the the drop from when I was on my basic course, because um, that when he dropped the weapon didn't in, uh, explode. It just hit the ground and bounced. Brilliant. And everyone was like, <laughs> what the hell just happened? Obviously, <laughs> as the JTAC, you don't really have a control over that bit. You know, no. everything, everything else went really well. Bomb comes off and it's just like... Uh, I, mean, I mean, as long as it's in the right area, you've done your job. Yeah. So, like, it landed on the right target. It just didn't go bang. Other than your crazy Islid story, you got one, like, funny story that kind of, like, jumps to mind whenever you think back to that time? Oh. Not really. I mean, the, the, working with the tornado guys when they came out and just seeing the shock on their face, how they were going to live. I think they thought there was an, a, like a hotel as well on the prairie, like the way they come down. I'm sure the guy the second week had like a suitcase with wheels. Like it were they wasn't wearing a proper, their flying suit? No, no. Like they got given combats, brand new spanking combats. Amazing. I was like, those have never seen a day anywhere. And um, yeah, we, we but, but again, when me and Gaz got sent to um, 16 Air Assault, used to be the ferry between um, Germany and England, and it used to be just a booze cruise. I remember one night, me and him, we just did 16 pints. Like, we just got levered, and we turned up at Guja the next morning to meet 16 Air Assault TACPs. These guys are super professional. They're like, oh, by the way, guys, P Company starts next week. Do you fancy it? 
and like us two were like more <laughs> like no mate we're, we're from like an armored brigade like fitness is not our thing but it was just just the whole time like i've got stories but not not that i want to get people in trouble with to be honest Roger but that. it was just it was just fun the whole time like everything we did yeah it's a great community and i uh I love like the fact that both people in and out like massively engage with us on a on a day to day to day basis, which is you know, like you know it's, you you can't let it go. You just can't leave it. Yeah. If you were going to go and be a desert island tap pee, and I gave you a good, I'm going to give you a good radio and a good set of ansils, so you'd be able to get comms. What other free items would you take to the desert island with you? Oh Jesus! I mean, am I, am I supposed to think that I'm getting off it, or just make myself comfortable? That's <laughs> that's the question. You you roll it up however you want, mate. To be honest, mate, the way the world is, I think I'll stay. Um, whiskey. I'm, I'm taking whiskey. I, I, I know, I know, it's not a good choice, but uh, oh god, not even books. Can I take the internet? <laughs> internet satellites, something like that. That has to be the best answer so far. When someone turned around to me and said, "I want to take my iPhone because it's got like maps on it and it's got books on it and it's got music," I was like, "I've I've heard like there's people like wishing for more wishes on the first few episodes where they were like, yeah, I'll take like ten different items, but can I take the internet? That's brilliant." That, mate, I want to take you need, one, of the, one, of the, one of one of the paradigm satellites where on tour used to be on plenty of fish all the time. One of those paradigm satellites to do that job. Um, so, so, so far I've got whiskey, the ability to be on internet dating. Um, I'm really bad at this. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just going to, oh God, this is a really good question. Yeah. I, I like it. I think, I think because it's so abstract, people are like, well, I don't even know what I need to do, but especially after like talking shit bits for an hour, you're like, what? Uh, yeah. I like the one thing that's a, that I would always take everywhere I go is it my knife that's got a seat belt cutter and a window breaker. But the fact that it's a knife, just because there's, there's not a lot you can't do. You know, if I need to open a bottle of something, I've got, I can do it with my knife. I need to whittle myself something. I can do it with my knife. Start I feel like I'd also take, I'd, I'd take someone that I really don't like with me. Okay. Just if I, just if I'm suffering, I want them to suffer as much as well. <laughs> there's my answer. Whiskey, internet dating and someone I don't like. I like it. Yeah. strong answers mate i really appreciate you taking the time and i'm, I'm sure, i hope you'll come back on and sit with one of our like uh group chats but if you had one closing message across the whole community like serving and veteran what would that message be um serving i mean i almost want to say like thank you to the guys that are serving now like I, I look in and see what's happening and it looks so professional and basically everything we wanted it to be I know how it started was a bit strung together, but just to see how everyone's done. And uh, it's a bit chippy. Um, I'm not quite that fat man drinking John Smith and the Legion yet, but everyone seems to have made the community so solid. And I think that's, it's also cool that we're really tight with the Danish, Americans and Canadians. Yeah. Like I think there is just a sort of, um, something about the community where it doesn't matter where you're from, you stick together. And also something completely irrelevant um, the 42nd guy this year today committed suicide veterans. So there, I think if anyone's having anything and you listen to this, like honestly reach out, even if it's just, you feel a bit anxious about things, like it's just something that, um, rolls and I say today, I think it was a 42nd guy this year, British veteran committed suicide. So 
yeah, like reach out. And if you don't want to reach out to a charity, reach out to the guys in the community and they'll just sit, speak with you, have a drink. And um, yeah, I mean, I was never a JTAC, but I was, I class myself as part of the community and I'll always sit and listen to people. Yeah, definitely, mate. I, I, I think that's, it's a hugely important point that you've brought up and I tried to do it justice the other day. Um, obviously, it, it surprised me that after I talked about it, um, like another three, I think it was another three guys in the last few days, had committed suicide and and uh, I was saying, you know, we should all be there for each other. And and this platform is available to anybody that wants to, to use it and come on and talk and, and tell a story that they may think could help people. But on top of more than on top of that, you know, everybody that's listening, you know, get in your phone books today, scroll through your phone and call somebody that you've not called in a while. Do you know what I mean? Don't, don't wait for them to call you, you know, grab the phone, open up contacts, scroll through, find a name you've not spoke to in a while and call them and speak for 10 minutes, 10 minutes. Like not, I'm not saying like get in some deep conversation, but just say, tell them you're alive and check that they are. Even dropping a message, like you're, you're yeah. in our bed, what's going on? Yeah. Like something like that. Just hundred percent. Like I, I've been out five years. Well, I left the army in 2011, but then I went out to Baghdad for another five years, like doing contractor work. But even from leaving 2011, and especially leaving 2015 contract work, I've just heard from nobody. Mm. Like the army, the army's so poor. Like I wrote on Twitter today, the um, army sergeant major, Glenn, whatever his name is, wrote about another guy dying. And I wrote on his Twitter saying, you know where we are to send out the reserve paperwork every year. Why not when you send that out, send out the leaflets with all the contact numbers on. Like it's such a simple thing. And he was like, oh yeah, okay. And I was like, I don't know. Like it's, there's a, there's a, there's a, the, the fact that charities exist, like Safra and Help for Heroes, and that they're great, they're great charities, but it's almost a crime that those charities exist. Yeah, like they shouldn't, they shouldn't have to exist. No. Um, and and yeah, like I hope that changes because, it, I mean, in Iraq, by the time forty lads had died, the government had chucked in hundreds of millions of pounds of new kit and equipment, and I say this year alone we've had forty-two die, and nothing's changing. Mm. So yeah, yeah. hopefully. The military catch up with that yeah and hopefully you know like you said like combat stress and all of those people they shouldn't have to exist but thank god they do and uh yeah you know, great work they do yeah it's it's there for us all isn't it right you know no one's no it's, one's it's, having it's an easy safe, time, all the time. yeah exactly but but i mean the, the first part of safety net is us absolutely like, it's yeah. us it's us reaching out it, it, it's not the charities because they don't know these people exist we're, we're the first point of call dude thank you so much yeah thank you thank you for having me on Thank you and I appreciate you taking the time to listen. All our podcasts sit on the Nine Foot Night Killer Collective, Soul Feed, Forge Not Made and the JTAP podcast. Take some time, maybe listen to one of the other podcast series that you're not listening to and give us your feedback. All these things only happen because of the Nine Foot Night Killer community and we really appreciate them. Thank you everybody for listening.